I love when you see restaurants and bars working together to create a sort of food and drink pairing menu but with different venues. Maybe if you're a bar and you don't have a kitchen space or you don't have the sort of workman or, or power to be able to do that, I'm sure if you talk to your restaurant around the corner and, and worked on some sort of collaboration, that's a really great way to introduce food. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today I am joined by Christopher Menning. Christopher is the host of the On The Back Bar podcast and founder of Gastronomer Lifestyle, which is a bar and restaurant review website that's centered mostly around Bangkok, which is where Christopher currently resides. On this episode, we talk about Christopher's experiences making drinks at the Michelin-starred Gravitai Manor in Sussex and how the venue shaped his appreciation of food and drink. Christopher describes his motivations for starting a food and drink website in Bangkok and we discuss the culinary scene in Thailand today. Christopher shares some of his favourite examples of bar snacks from Thailand and beyond. I throw a few examples in there as well. And Christopher also shares with us some best practices for producing food menu to serve alongside drinks. It's fair to say that by the end of this episode, I was feeling fairly hungry. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, I am joined here with Christopher Menning. Welcome to the podcast, Christopher. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, man. How you been? Good, thank you. Good, good. And yourself? Yeah, no, very good. I was just chatting about uh, Bangkok and we're sort of going back into normality now. Things have opened up, so uh, everything's very exciting here now. People going out, eating and drinking, so good times for us. That's good to hear, good to hear. Um, I want to get on to Bangkok at some point and your, your experiences there. And um, perhaps maybe we can start um, with, uh, you know, give yourself a little bit of a bio on, on your uh, career in the bar industry, where you've been, what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, it's always very interesting when I get asked these days, like, what do you do for a job? And to be honest, a lot of the time I just say, well, I, I kind of just eat and drink for a living. <laughs> that tends to be a lot of what I do, but um, actually my, my background is uh, in hospitality. So I, I spent 12 years in, in F&B uh, working in England. So I really did everything. You know, I worked from washing dishes to cocktail bars, flare bars, uh, throwing bottles, but I was never very good. Um, and then I got into the world of hotels and uh, bar management. And uh, I was in a place called Brighton in the south. I'm sure most of your listeners will know. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Probably the pinnacle of my career was uh, I went to a place called Grave Time Manor, which was a Michelin-style restaurant and Relian Chateau Hotel. And I guess that's where everything sort of really opened up my eyes a lot to the world of fine dining uh, and luxury and, and food and beverage. And uh, it was a great time. I was there for a few years uh, running the bar program and the lounge as well and uh, loved it. So I've always been very active in the drinks industry, always attending different uh, events such as Imbibe in London. But it got to the point where I realized I kind of wanted to step away from the bar and more work on my strengths. So uh, I did what most people do. I, I quit my job, took a one-way ticket to Thailand of all places and started my business. So um, it's been quite a journey, but I, I've loved every step of it. So what I do now is I am the founder and managing editor of Gastronomer Lifestyle. And Gastronomer Lifestyle is essentially a digital publishing company uh, working on the promotion of food and drink tourism. So we're an online platform with a directory of hotels, bars and restaurants. Uh, we do a lot of content marketing such as chef interviews 
um, and where to go and, and eat. And, and really is just sort of promoting the industry for travelers coming to Thailand or Southeast Asia. Alongside that, I also have my podcast on the Bat Bar, where I regularly interview industry leaders and experts and just chat about the industry, really. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, it's funny. I've got so many different hats at the moment. Um, I'm loving every minute. I feel like I'm, I'm running 100 miles an hour most of the time. But um, the crux of the matter is, yes, I just eat and drink and, and love to share and talk about it and, and promote the wonderful city that I'm in. So you are becoming somewhat of a media magnet then. Um like the Reuters for food and drink, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I think that really stemmed from, you know, I've always had an entrepreneurship mindset. And, you know, I, from university, I was like, I've got to start my own business one day. And I think it's always going to be an F&B and I have many plans for the future. But um, what I found is I, I wasn't quite content with, I guess, some of the media that were promoting um, sort of the place I was visiting in Southeast Asia. And I really wanted to create this sort of, amazing platform but from an experienced background so someone who's actually from hospitality and lives and breathes it uh, and go from there so yeah magnate that's quite uh, a stretch we're getting there i suppose but um yeah it's it's a pretty exciting role to hold so how many different restaurants and bars have you visited now in thailand how long, how long have you been there for first of all yeah sure i've been here four years um and it's been fantastic. Um, I've probably been to majority, but what's great about Bangkok is it's such a beautiful chaos. And um, even now I'm surprised by the amount of places that are popping up and opening. So it, it's really quite an exciting place to be. I'm constantly invited to new restaurants and new bars. Um, so it, it never gets dull. And I think right now we have currently about 12,000 venues in Bangkok. Um, Bangkok is a little bit smaller than London, so there's a lot of different bars and restaurants to visit. Um, but it's a great city, right? I mean, I've visited <clears throat> quite a few times. I think I first went there around about 10 or 11 years ago. And um, uh, myself and my business partner set up a, or helped to set up a bar there, Vespa, which has gone on to do great things and 50 Best and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I don't know, when was that? About six, seven years ago, I guess, Vespa opened, something like that. Um, been back a few times and done guest shifts there. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. It's just got a certain energy about it. Everyone seems pretty happy. Obviously, it's nice and hot. And, you know, a really thriving food and drink culture. I was surprised even the first time I went out there about how developed um, the bar scene was in particular. Um, far more developed than a lot of European cities were at the time. And, um, yeah, some really great operators out there kind of pushing the envelope on it and some great restaurants as well. You know, you always eat well there. Um, so I'm not at all surprised you are kind of inspired to set up your business because there's just a lot to be proud of and to celebrate in, in um, Bangkok's scene. Mm -hmm. No, totally, I agree. It's, um, it's just grown exponentially, it really has. And I, I guess touching on the bar trade for sure, um, I guess a lot of it came from the rise of Singapore, which really set off the region um, for amazing beverage programs. Um, and Bangkok being one of the closest sort of mega cities nearby, it just really took that on. Um, and you see, it's the, there is a real energy here for sure. The bartenders and bar operators that, that run here, they have amazing uh, venues and they're so, you know, there's so much incredible sort of concepts that, that are coming out that, like you said, are, are far more advanced than sort of European cities. I think they're hungry and that, that's what's always been the drive for me, you know, to try and compete with places like London and New York and their energy and that drive has, you know, been the pinnacle of what it is today. 
so yeah it's fantastic we've got great places um so so what food do you like to eat in particular is there anything that um you sort of look for or you know you're all about the sort of diversity and trying lots of different stuff is it yeah totally like you know for us we're we're very much we sort of encompass the whole food concept and we do from street food to fine dining um, and I think that's what's great about Bangkok because you can literally have probably the best chicken rice of your life on a little street corner with an old woman frying the pan and then you know two seconds around the corner you'll have an Michelin star meal you know fine dining experience so there is so much uh, going on so I think we're quite lucky uh, in terms of what I eat normally. Um, I mean, I get invited to a lot of restaurants, so I'm constantly trying new foods and new concepts and, you know, seeing who wants to push the boundaries. But I'm also very partial to some good street food. And this could be very much like uh, some classic Thai food like Khao uh, Mulping, which is sticky rice and grilled pork skewers. And you'll find that for, you know, a pound. It's so cheap, but delicious. Um, and also, yeah, chicken rice, Hananese chicken rice, uh, very classic from Singapore and Vietnam have their own type as well. You'll find that everywhere in Bangkok. So we're very spoiled. Um, there's a very big, diverse um, Italian and Japanese community here too. So I live in an area called Tonglo and you'll find, I think we've got 30 different Japanese restaurants up the road. Um, and, you know, things like izakaya are just perfect because if you want to go have a couple of beers and a nice drink, izakaya food is perfect for that because it's all these small plates, generally salty, grilled meat. It's just a perfect example of food and drink pairing. So what are some of the common things that people in Bangkok are, are eating alongside their drinks? Um, you mentioned the, the pork and the rice. Anything else? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, you know, when it comes to Thai people, it's very much a communal thing when it comes to eating. I, I love that about Asia, actually. Uh, it's very much you eat with your family, your friends. If you go to the street food, you're just with a group of people and everyone's enjoying. Um, but you're very much with Thai people. It's, it's like having a lot of small dishes, very much a la carte, and you enjoy a couple of beers or a highball. But Thai cooking in itself is, is very intricate and complicated um, because they have the balance of the five flavours. And, you know, we have an amazing amount of dishes like morning glory stir fried with um, fish sauce and garlic. Or you can move over to, you know, chicken and cashew nut curry. And it's just such a combination of, of amazing flavors. What's the five key flavors you mentioned? Sure. Yeah. So it's sweet, sour, salty, bitter and hot. And you use a number of things like uh, sugar, fish oil. Um, and, and just create these amazing combinations. Um, Thai people have been doing this for centuries throughout the family, so they pass down recipes. Um, one of my favorite snacks when I'm going to, say, a market with a couple of beers uh, is prawn crackers, but they make these huge prawn crackers, and you have it with a thing called namprik pao. Now, namprik for me is essentially um, the Thai food. It is literally the, the Thai food of the nation. Namprik is essentially like a chili paste, a dipping sauce, but with every family in every region, it's completely different. So you have Namprik Kapi, Namprik Pakao, everything's very different, um, but it just tastes amazing. And you really get a sense of place by trying the Namprik from that region. And it can be, as like I said, with a couple of prawn crackers, a little dip, and then with a couple of beers, but because you have that salty, sour, you know, fish oil, it, it just works so beautifully in harmony with drinks. Mm. Do you think there's a better drink to pair this stuff with than beer? Um, I mean, I know I drink a lot of beer when I go to Thailand and it's, there's something about the sort of cool, refreshing bubbles of a lager type beer that seems to work well with, like you say, all that spice and salt and sourness, sweetness. Um, but 
you know, it, 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 do people drink cocktails with this food? Like you mentioned highballs, is that whiskey highballs? That's right, yeah. I mean, Thai people are very proud of their beer. You've got Chang and Sing, which kind of um, are the big beer brands here. Um, and highballs as well, yes. I think, yeah, um, in terms of like cocktails, there's definitely a a divide when it comes to what street food people do and you know how they have the drinks and the food. And cocktails are, tend to be a bit more refined. However, I am starting to see a lot more cocktail bars offer different food options. Uh, one is Find the Locker Room, which is a really good example. They're starting to do small bites as well, which is sort of drunken chicken or pork buns. And they're really small foods, which again is sort of always like salty, a little bit sweet, but it pairs beautifully with the cocktails. And I think, you know, if you're if you're thinking about cocktails, we are flavor manipulators. We are always constantly looking at how things balance and pairing foods that balances with cocktails can be quite complicated sometimes so yeah i think if you're looking at sort of um i mean i think it's great how thai people have done it because they've looked at what's going on on the street what's popular and what's pairing say with beer and highballs and they say well how can we replicate with that with cocktails you know how can we bring that into the bar and i i am seeing some places doing it pretty well it is a tricky one isn't it i mean I've done a lot of uh, tasting dinners with cocktail pairings, whiskey dinners as well, whiskey pairings, that kind of stuff. And you do often end up sort of thinking, hmm, would this have worked better with wine? Maybe. Uh, it is possible, of course, to have great pairings. I think, you know, especially with desserts, it becomes a little bit easier because you've got sweetness there to work with. With savoury dishes, it's really hard to challenge beer and wine, I think. And when, when, I think when I see success in it, it's mostly in drinks that are sort of similar in their makeup to beer and wine. So it's highballs, which are effectively a uh, deconstruct, reconstruct beer anyway, if you think, you know, whiskey is made from beer originally and then distilled and then soda water added back in. Um, and then, you know, wine type drinks, so things like spritzes or just cocktails that kind of simulate that same sort of slight slight acidity slight sweetness length and mouthfeel that a glass of wine has i'm thinking of th things like a bit like kind of aperitif style cocktails um as soon as you move away from that and i don't know if you agree with me it becomes a much more of a challenge to pair food um i don't know i mean i guess there's opportunities with things like sours right you almost got to think about the cocktail like a sauce that goes with the dish i suppose yeah i mean you're completely right i think for sure, wine and food has been done for a very long time and you know, I think once you understand the basic principles of flavour pairing, um, most people can do it with a wine education. But when it comes to cocktails, for sure, there are so many nuances and so many complexities you need to think about and it can be very difficult. But I think it's also important to look at sort of how wine and food pairs together or how beer and food together and really try to understand that. You know, if, if we look at sort of um, classic fish dishes that pair perfectly with a high acidity Sauvignon Blanc or a Chenin Blanc, then you're right. You go for something like a sour or, you know, a twist on a sour and add some acidity that goes into it. But also, if you look at sort of uh, classic French dishes of, you know, duck breast paired with a lovely Cote de Rhone or, or something, the red wine adds to sort of a little bit of tanning and a little bit of like blackberry and jam. You can almost sort of start taking it apart and trying to replicate that in a cocktail. Certainly difficult, but I think that's definitely the way to go by looking what already works and start to deconstruct it and see, well, how can we replicate that in a cocktail? 
yeah, rather than starting from sort of square one, you look at an example of something that already works and then try and simulate it using other ingredients. Totally, totally. And I think there's a really good example. You know, sommeliers have been trained for a very long time in terms of how to pair food and wine. Um, and very much with chefs. Chefs have amazing palates. You know, they've been trained for a very long time. And I do believe that um, the bar community and for anyone listening, if you want to start getting into food and drink pairing, talk to who's working with you in your wine department or your food department and start throwing ideas out there because they're probably going to have all this knowledge built up already about what works and you can use that knowledge to start building up your beverage concept. Mm. Do you think there's um, a sort of argument for creating food items that are sort of incomplete but then completing them with the addition of the cocktail on the side? Um, you know, I mentioned already like how a cocktail, you might think of it like a sauce that's served with the dish. Um, so what about a sort of imbalanced dish that becomes balanced only when paired with a particular drink? Or do you think that's a bit like risky? I like that idea and I think actually the way to do that because you've got to remember as you're eating a dish, the way to eat it, you kind of scoop everything out. All these amazing elements go together as you eat in your mouth, right? So how do you bring that out the drink? I would say to work on that, you, you know, play with textures when it comes to drinks and this could be a way of you know creating a sphere or, or pearls um, finding some way to incorporate a texture that adds to the spoon as they eat that that probably be the easiest way to do it without deconstructing too far <laughs> yeah sure and I suppose you know if we're talking about a cocktail bar that wants to introduce food pairing or do more with their food offering then you might already have a cocktail list that's working well for you and so actually it's then about creating food items that are compatible with those drinks Mm. You know, I think what I'd like to see more in the industry is more operators going in with the approach of wanting to have an amazing food and drink experience or food and drink concept. Too many times I see great restaurants open and they are fantastic. However, there's little effort gone into the beverage or same with a cocktail bar and they're doing great cocktails. And then down the line, they're like, hey, we should probably add some food. Let's just throw this in and see if people like it. And it's just never really thought out properly. So I'd really love people or operators to really think as in having this, you know, synergy of both. Because that's what we're doing. We really are, you know, creating this experience for people. And I always say that as you go to a venue, the experience is everything compared to the venue, to the food, to the drink. But it really should be that forward thinking approach to it. Um, you know, there's some great examples of, you know, beer and burgers. It's, it's a perfect harmony, it works so well. So why not build a craft beer list with the burgers that you serve or the chicken wings? And that you create these um, perfect accompaniments that you've test, tried and tested yourself that you can offer to the customers. Uh, very much like wine and sherry with oysters and, and tapas. You could create it in your mind before you even launch a concept so you know this is the perfect pair, pairing that your customers will love and will enjoy the experience. And you have that as part of your menu. I think that's definitely the way forward we should go. I'm definitely seeing it happen in a lot of places, but not enough. I think we should do more. Yeah, and I think um, sometimes customers really want to be told what they should be eating and drinking, right? Um, I mean, you need to have choice there, obviously, or at least the illusion of choice. <laughs> but in reality, a lot of people, especially if you know, you're running a pretty high-level venue, Sometimes people are a little bit panicked, I've, in my experience. They turn up and they're like, right, I want the full experience. and I, I want to you know, get to know this place and I don't want to miss out on anything, especially in this day and age with like, you know, Instagram and everything. People are out there for these experiences and they want to feel like they've ticked that box off. And so I do think recommendations are a huge part of that. And if you can 
create some pairings between food and drink that you know you list on your menu whether that's you know you're eating this food we recommend this wine or this cocktail or it's you know literally like well you're buying this drink so you're getting this food with it uh, are there any other ways that you have seen bars and restaurants effectively kind of promoting food with their with their drinks um yeah totally i, I always see that collaboration is, is key to this um I love when you see restaurants and bars working together uh, to create a sort of um, a, a food and drink pairing menu, but with different venues. So it could be like uh, inviting a chef over to create a menu specifically for your bar, or whether you have an amazing restaurant down the corner and you create a beverage menu for them. Um, it's a great way to share the audience and really sort of drive awareness of what you're doing in the region. And I think it's also very true that if you look down your road, I'm sure there's a number of uh, bars and restaurants that you could potentially work together. Maybe if you're a bar and you don't have a kitchen space or you don't have the sort of workman or, or power to be able to do that, I'm sure if you talk to your restaurant around the corner and, and worked on some sort of collaboration, that's a really great way to introduce food uh, into your beverage program. It's probably under-recognized how much people appreciate being kind of having their hands held and taken down that kind of pathway. Um, Perhaps we can get a little bit too hung up on giving people choice and freedom um, when in actual fact we want to give them an experience at the venue. I totally agree. You know, if I go to a restaurant, I want the chef to choose for me. You know why? Because he's spent time creating the menu. He knows what's good and he knows what he wants to recommend. So I'll leave it in his hands. You know, it's experience. He's created that himself and very much the same with a bar. I'll say, well, you know, what's your favorite signature? What's selling well? What do you want to promote about your bar? And I leave it to the experience of the server or the chef or the bartender. I think you're totally right. And, you know, I know a lot of customers as well. Maybe they'll leave the restaurant thinking, did I order the wrong thing? Maybe I should have gone for something else. And, you know, you don't want them to leave with that, right? Yeah, that's awful. We don't want that, we don't want that taste of regret. Um, it, yeah. Oh, and food envy, the one, the sort of bit that comes in the middle. It, it's, um, yeah, I, it is an interesting one. I mean, we've seen it, I think, with sort of top restaurants around the world. Menus getting smaller, right? Or no choice at all. This is what you're eating. And that's a sign of the times, I think. I, it's always a bit bit kind of worrying when you go to a place and there's like 30 different options to choose from um, and very little direction on where to go with that because you're like, wow, really? You managed to keep you know, all the food and fresh for this and you know, each dish is super exciting. It's uh, for me. It's nicer when I see one of these more sort of curated lists, and that goes for cocktail bars too. I mean, I like cocktail bars where it's like we're only doing five drinks tonight. That's it. You know, I might do another five tomorrow night, but these are the five we're focusing on. I mean, milk and honey in uh, New York. I've been doing that for quite some time now. You know, these are the classics. You can you can order off menu if you want, but these are the ones that we're featuring tonight. And it just feels like you get to go there and experience it that night. And if you wanted to drink five cocktails, perhaps you'd share them responsibly with someone. Um, then you can kind of taste the whole experience and not feel like you've missed out on anything. Yeah, totally. You want, yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head. You want people to sort of have their hands held almost, um, but they're going there for the best, and it's your job to tell them what the best is so they can take that. Um, I, I think definitely when you go into the levels of fine dining, for sure, and, and cocktail bars that are sort of operating on a higher level, totally, you want to take the control out of the guest's hands and just say, hey, this is what we're good at. You're going to love it. So here you go. It's got to feel natural, though, I think. Um, I've experienced a few times, this often happens in the US, but it, I've, I've experienced it elsewhere too, where, you know, your server comes over, introduces themselves, 
um, pours you some ice water and then sort of reels off a couple of menu items that presumably they've been prompted to recommend. Now that, that can be warning signs for me because I'm like, mm, okay, cool. It's cool that you're recommending it. I like, you know, probably would have asked for a recommendation anyway, but it's kind of coming at the tail end of a spiel that's been reeled off almost automatically. Um, it's like, is, are you recommending this because, you know, there's a good GP on it or, um, the, you know, the ingredients are shifting towards their, their use by date and then, you know, we need to get this out of the kitchen, make some money on it. Um, and I, I'm not sure that's a good strategy. I, for personally, I don't see that as good service. It's, I mean, obviously a lot of it depends on the delivery. Um, if it can be delivered naturally into the conversation, then, then that's fine. But, um, yeah, I'm pretty much make a habit now of not even asking what I should eat, but asking what they would eat. What, what's the good, what's good on the, when you get, when you get this for like staff lunch, you know, what's, what's the tastiest thing on the menu and, um, being someone who eats pretty much everything these days, that's, uh, it means that, you know, I'm an open book as to what I'm going to order. Well, I, I think, you know, a good experience of that is when I was at Grave Tomana and, uh, we were very fortunate to have a one acre ward kitchen garden and it was very much the case of in the morning, me and the chef would go up or him and his team and me and my team, uh, and see what was growing. So everything was super seasonal, you know. Nice, yeah. Do you think is that sort of a bit of a movement in Thailand? Do you think a lot of the more popular cocktails are are incorporating Thai ingredients and therefore more familiar flavors to the food culture, or you know, are Thai people actually more interested in Thai, trying American cocktails like sours and all the classics? I think it's starting to change. Yeah, uh, for sure. When the cocktail boom first started, it was more definitely a focus on classics, American style. Um, and you know, it got to the point where it was almost over experimentation, where consumers were almost left a bit confused. They didn't know what they were drinking, and they weren't sure if they liked it or not. And I, I guess that's for any young industry; they're going to get to that point where they are overly experimenting and trying to find their feet. Um, but for sure, yes, I, I believe that bars in Bangkok are starting to find their element. Um, they are working with more local flavors, which is great. And um, yeah, I think that really does well for uh, the consumer here because people want to find drinks or flavors that remind them of their childhood, for instance, or remind them of where they are. So um, yeah, a good example would be Nick's, um, Teens of Thailand and also Asia Today, um, both fantastic bars. Uh, Asia Today is really great because he uses honey and cacao from the region. So with honey, he has, I think, over 50 types of honey. And these are all Thai honeys that he's found from farmers in the region. And the cacao comes from a local farmer as well. And the whole menu is based on that. That's cool. Yeah, and also, like, you know, I wouldn't think of honey as being an especially Thai ingredient. But as someone who travels to Thailand, to see that on a menu and go, oh, wow, cool, different types of honey from all over Thailand, I'd be super interested in trying that. Partly because, you know... It fits into cocktails nicely. You can you can use honey to sweeten a whole variety of drinks, and so then you've got a nice twist on classics, let's say, with that Thai element. But it's not being forced. It's not like you know sticking coriander leaves in every single cocktail because that's Thai. Um, you know, not that anyone Thai would do that, I'm sure, but that might be you know more of a Western interpretation of what a Thai cocktail might look or taste like. Mm. You know, I think it's also we we try to do. Um... So tapachi, I'm sure you know from Mexico, right? Oh, yeah. Beautiful drink. Tapachi is a fermented beer beverage. It's um, very popular in, in Mexico. And essentially, you, you just ferment uh, pineapple uh, with sugar uh, and cinnamon, but sugar from the region. 
uh, and you let it sit basically to carbonate in, in a sealed container, it, it um, generates sort of uh, alcohol over time and becomes like a beer and it, it's really delicious. But we wanted to recreate that within Thailand and we used pineapples that were local to Thailand, which are from the South Phuket. And they're actually a lot smaller, really small, these pineapples, but they have so much more sugar. And instead of the sugar that you normally find in Mexico, I can't remember what it's called, but um, what we used is palm sugar. So palm sugar from the palms in Thailand as well. Um, and it was phenomenal. It was such an, a delicious drink. We had quite a lot going at the time. I think we mixed it with uh, rum and a ginger kefir soda, which is quite lovely. Um, so yeah, I think that's also um, quite a good thing to do as well. Uh, Jay Khan is a perfect example of mm. koa in Hong Kong. He uses a lot of Mexican inspiration but recreate drinks in Hong Kong uh, with localized ingredients. And I think that's always a good way to, uh, to go as well. Yeah, kind of looking to classic formulas, whether that be from, you know, classic cocktail culture or food, and then just switching out the ingredients, basically. And it's, I think it works especially well when, you know, it's a bit like what we said with, with cocktail and food pairing, where, you know, you sort of simulate the effect of the wine by using other ingredients. Again, like if you're switching ingredient out, look for something that's similar in its you know sweet and sour and bitterness balance or whether it's sort of on a similar intensity on the aromatic sort of profile and then try that out and see see how it works yeah 100 percent, completely agree i think you know once we um once people start unlocking their menus and start looking at a local area see what's popular in other cultures and really start to ground it around that that's where you'll see a, a bit more of a success with uh, your consumer base um so i thought maybe we'd kind of end this um by trying to hammer out between us what the top five bar snacks of all time are. Um, <laughs> I fancy list. having a go at this. Um, I've got a couple of ideas myself. Okay. And no doubt you've, 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 you've sampled more than me, I'm sure. So you've probably got a, a, a few you can contribute. And um, if you don't like any of my examples, then you're welcome to kind of challenge me and, and I'll do likewise. Of course, that's difficult without actually tasting it, but you know. <laughs> all right, sure. So, I mean, for me, uh, popcorn is always a winner. Ooh, I think popcorn is good. But salted, sweet, cheesy, cheesy popcorn is uh, good in drinks, right? Cheesy, I'm not sure about, but salted for sure. I think, um, I mean, honestly, I would say to anyone, never put anything sweet on your bar snack menu. Um, nine times mm. out of ten, it won't match the drink. But popcorn, man, yeah. it's cost effective, it's easy to eat, it looks good. Yeah, that's probably one of my top. It's a good shout, you know, um, the Edition Hotel in London um, hand out free popcorn. Um, which is a major mistake when I'm around because I'll get through it. Um, yeah. Although I don't actually eat popcorn anymore. But um, go on then, have you got uh, any more? Or do you want me to sort of interject one here? I have, yeah. I think, um, so the probably other two top ones for me, uh, pistachios, I think are always great. However, you always end up picking up shells. They make you work for it, the pistachios, don't they? It's not, you know, it's not a free ride. Uh, you have to put a little bit of elbow grease into them, but that's sort of part of the satisfaction, isn't it? Right, but I think another one for me is definitely paprika almonds. I could just eat handfuls of that. Almonds are so good because they're like zero fat. They, you know, it's lovely nut, but with paprika, that's amazing. That's heaven. Oh, well, see, one of mine was going to be smoked almonds, um, which we used to have at one of my bars, and they are very Moorish. Um, Another one that I'd put in, which is not something that's available any, everywhere, but it's probably the best bar snack I've ever had in a bar, um, was macaroni cheese balls. Um, it's definitely a cheese theme running through my suggestions here. I don't know what that says about me. Macaroni cheese balls at 28 Hong Kong Street in Singapore. 
they've always had a really good sort of food and bar snacks program. It's always been something that they've been great at from the start. It's like you go there and if you've not eaten food, then you've sort of wasted your opportunity. Um, and I remember having, I think the deep fried, the deep fried macaroni cheese balls. So imagine something a bit like arancini, um, like deep fried risotto, but this is made from pasta and cheese and it's all gooey and melty in the middle and crispy on the outside. That sounds very decadent, yeah. That sounds really, really good. I want some now. <laughs> um, have you got anything else for consideration in this top five? I think, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about sort of bar snacks and whether it's as simple as peanuts or, or, yeah, a bit more complicated like macaroni cheese, it's always about thinking what the beverage offering is, right? You've got to go with that first and then, and then lead with what food's going to come. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of the things that unifies everything we've sort of talked about just there in that particular list is saltiness um and uh I mean, what do you think about that you, i mean saltiness i guess it is just a good kind of counter active to the drink right i mean since, since cocktails don't tend to be salty so you're sort of balancing out what's probably got a bit of sweetness maybe some acidity or bitterness to it with saltiness so you're sort of completing that flavor profile that flavor spectrum yeah well i mean salt's a flavor enhancer you know um, it's been used by chefs for a long time so it does definitely add to the drink and obviously it makes you salivate so you want to drink more so there is uh, you know that sort of example so if you're having a delicious drink you kind of want to uh, yeah keep slurping and, and savor it more so as a as a flavor enhancer definitely works pretty well with drinks and food nice right i think i want to go and eat something salty now um Cool. Christopher, look, thanks so much for coming on. Remind us again where we can find your podcast, your website. Totally, yeah. Thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure. So um, on the Bat Bar, you can find me on iTunes, Spotify, uh, and all major podcast providers. And if you search my website, it's Gastronomer Lifestyle. Uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook as well. And the website really is a, a full directory of restaurants and bars in Southeast Asia. So if you're looking for somewhere to go when you visit here, then that's definitely the resource to use. Wow, that was a great conversation, and I expect you two are feeling hungry now. Uh, if you enjoyed that episode, keep an eye out for the upcoming Bar Chat short, which will include additional content from that recording that didn't appear in that episode. It's definitely worth looking out for. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, share, like this podcast, and we will see you next time.